Welcome, everyone. This is Sasha Stasha Talks on Moving Mountains. Today, I have a great guest who will be sharing his insights from living on at least three different continents, traveling out to 40 different countries, and sharing with us how he embraced his writing career later in life. Welcome, Stephen, to Moving Mountains. Thank you, Sasha, and thank you for inviting me on your show, and thank you uh, to your listeners for tuning in. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to introduce us to your world of writing. But before so, what intrigued me about your profile was you have lived in different parts of the world and you've had quite some journey before you ended up where you are presently. And would you be kind in sharing what was your experience like growing up a bit in Africa before going to boarding school? It was it was very different. But, you know, when we moved to Africa, I was only seven years old. And I don't think as a child you're necessarily aware that you're doing anything different than what everybody else is doing. You kind of go with the flow, which is what we had to do. It was indeed very, very different from uh, what we would have had had the family stayed in England. No question about that. Um, I think it was a much better life as it transpired because... um, it was much more an outdoor life. It was a healthier lifestyle. Um, England, you know, for all that it has going for it, had, you know, has terrible weather and uh, it's just very hard. But it was just a fun growing up life in Africa. There, there are memories that I've gotten I will always treasure and I'll always be grateful for that experience. Because you had the privilege of living in different places, was there at any moment in your life where you anticipated, did you ever like writing before writing and life experiences came together, turning you into an author today? No, uh, Sasha, I I really had never thought about writing. Um, Never really appeared on my radar screen at all until one day I, I was here in Nevada by that stage and you know, many years later after my boarding school days but many years later when I suddenly got the urge to write a book about my travels throughout the world you know it's, it's been almost 40 different countries I've actually visited and I really thought I'd like to put down the experiences of these different countries and cultures on paper. And it was during that time that I discovered a real joy of writing and have pursued it into the world of fiction. Um, And it's been a hobby that I hadn't anticipated at all during any time in my life. Because you also cover different genres within the fiction from love, murder, mysteries, and crimes, how did murder mysteries and crimes come into the picture? <laughs> well, I, after I published my memoir about um, my travels, I discovered this story of writing, and I started to write a murder mystery, in part because um, 
my business partner, myself, we were having a dinner party for our, a couple of our clients, and we thought instead of doing just a regular dinner, uh, my business partner suggested we did a murder mystery, and I said, oh, I don't know about murder mystery. I don't know how those games work. And he said, well, you're the writer. You write a murder mystery. So I wrote the short story um, as part of our dinner that evening, and then I thought when I finished my biography um, and discovered this joy of writing, I thought, let me turn this into a murder mystery. And that's how that came about. I was just going to ask you if it was inspired by one of those murder mystery events where you, ha- you host it or you attend the event and one of the well, people ends up being the murderer. No, um, I had been to some, a couple of those events, and I think you've got to be a real good host to pull those things off. Um, and I just thought I'd do something simple and have some games included in it. And the murder mystery is about a very wealthy Beverly Hills couple, and they're celebrating their silver wedding anniversary, and somebody gets murdered. And... Unfortunately, Sasha, I know very little about the Beverly Hills lifestyle, but I had had the good fortune to travel on the Queen Elizabeth II um, luxury liner coming back from Southampton to New York. So I took the same theme, but instead of this couple, these wealthy couples um, celebrating their wedding, wedding anniversary in Beverly Hills, I just transported it to the Queen Elizabeth II where I could use some of the surroundings with which I was familiar. So that's how that came about. And that's how uh, why it was called Murder Aboard the Queen Elizabeth II. What are the top two ingredients of writing a mystery or a crime novel that say readable from cover to cover? Well, in, in my own in my own opinion, whether it's a murder mystery or a crime or, or any book, um, what I've always tried to focus on um, is character development. I, I think the characters have got to be so well defined and true to their characters and what their role in the book is. And some of the characters, and certainly in a murder mystery. You've got to have characters whom the audience will love. And there's got to be um, characters that the readers are just going to despise. Um, certainly the, the murderers, hopefully one would despise them. Um, but that, that's what I always find. And of course, there's got to be, a, a, certainly in a murder mystery, I think there's got to be enough sort of clues dropped throughout the way. But... What I have tried to use in both of my murder books is that there's lots of chops and changes. So um, just when you think you know who the guilty party is or what's going to happen, there's a little twist and a turn. And I've tried to put several twists and turns in my murder books so the reader doesn't actually know what's going to happen until the very last chapter. That sounds very enticing for everyone to check out Stephen Murray's book. With the murder mystery and the crime, know that in your speaking engagements, you also touch upon that these stories and your writing is solely 
a figment of your imagination. All of us are born with an imagination. In your opinion, how can one nurture or tap into their imagination? Uh, that is a very good question, Sasha. I think, um, one ha- firstly, I think one has to dig inside of oneself. You have to look into yourself. Certainly, when it comes to character development, if you want to make the characters credible or believable, and you want to say an individual to have a very jealous and outrageous personality, you've got to try and dig inside yourself and find out if you're jealous by nature and if you're not, what would it be like? And I really think you've got to try and get inside and see if you can feel that emotion because it is all about emotions at the end of the day. Well, jealousy is definitely a dynamic emotion, and it could. Do you believe that there's any positive aspect to jealousy, just in general human nature? I, I don't think so. Not not really. I I don't. Maybe I've just been um, very blessed and very fortunate um, that I don't think I have a jealous nature. I think uh, for people that there's always going to be uh, people that are more successful in different ways around us. And I think we should always be pleased for anyone's success, whether it's, you know, in business, whether it's in romance or love or money or travel, whatever, family, whatever their success is, I don't think we should ever be jealous of it. We should just be pleased for people. If we're to get anywhere, you know, together as a human race, I think that's what what we need to try and at least strive for, try and just be pleased for our, our friends' successes. Likewise, I often remind people that in order, if we want good blessings in our life, we also have to wish that upon our neighbor or else it detracts you from the beauty of life as we go along. Sure. You've also written Chapel of Eternal Love and that there was also a follow-up to that and it's love stories of couples getting married and it seems that you like to focus on various types of union. What has writing about love taught you in the process? Has your perception or your views on love shifted over your writing career? Oh, a- absolutely. There's no question about that. Um, I had never planned to write The Chapel of Eternal Love, the fictional book about wedding stories of Las Vegas. And again, it's, it is all 100% imagination. Not, none of them are real-life stories. I didn't interview anybody who'd been married at a Las Vegas wedding chapel. I didn't interview any wedding chapel officiants or anything. Um, I hadn't planned on writing that book. But after I'd written my memoir and I'd started writing my murder mystery, I was told by a publisher that one really needs to write for women. And I thought, shucks, I don't know about writing anything for women. I I really don't and didn't. But I was fortunate enough that I joined a critique group that started out with um, two gentlemen, myself and one other, and a lady and the other gentleman dropped out, but three other women joined. So there were four women and myself. And 
when I decided to write the chapter of eternal love, I stumbled across the idea by accident. And these women, they were they were just marvelous in helping me through it. And I just learned a lot, so much about how men see things differently and women do. And women do. You know, we just, uh, we all see the same thing and see it, see it through different prisms. It's quite amazing. And yes, I did learn an awful lot about love and marriage and how women see things and how men see things. It was an eye-opening experience. Absolutely. Love is accessible to all human beings if they exercise free will. Do you believe those love stories would differ? Is there a common theme? Or does it matter where these love stories emanate from, whether it's from London, Los Angeles, Las Vegas? Well, I, I think such that we all we all fall in love for different reasons. Love means different things to different people. It's not a one size fits all. Um, some people's relationships or love relationships or marriages thrives in certain conditions where others wouldn't. And what I tried to make the chapel of eternal love about was the different reasons why people were pitching up at the altar, why they were showing up. And just an example, um, one of the couples is an elderly couple. They've both celebrated 50 years of marriage with their loved ones, and they both lose their loved ones. And they both happen to meet in a cemetery uh, where both of their spouses have been buried, and they just start talking. And their love is really one of loneliness and compassion and understanding. They can both see where the other one's coming from. They're not looking for a, um, a wonderful sex life and raising a family. They're marrying for a very different reason. They're marrying for companionship and understanding. And that's just one example of you know, where love means something to one couple, but not necessarily to a couple 50 years younger. They may see it differently. Do you believe there will be a trilogy for the Chapel of Eternal Love? No, I think um, I I had never planned, well, as I said, I never planned on the original. (laughs) I never planned on there being a sequel. The sequel was, in fact, in response to um, readers' interest. I was getting emails wanting to know what happened to all of these couples after they left the chapel altar. Well, that surprised me because these people were all fictional, so I didn't think people would really care what happened to them. Uh, since the stories are as wide, why did they come to the chapel in the first place? Um, so that was a very pleasant surprise that I hadn't expected. So again, I had to drop my murder mystery, my murder aboard the Queen Elizabeth II, and uh, come up with a sequel that revisits the couples from the first book five years down the road and where their journeys have taken them. And that was a very fun experience because, as I said, I'd never planned on it. And having to come up with follow-up stories for each of these couples, then I really did have to dig deep down into the, the memory bank and treasure trove of imagination, see what I could come up with. And it was, it was pretty successful. People seemed to enjoy it.
And then with love, it also segues into the world of entertainment and partially lust. What caught my attention was your book, Discreetly Yours, and the fact that it also, (laughs) (laughs) there's a baseline of characters that are part of escort services. And in your writing projects, do you go out and actually research these type of environments in order to depict them as realistically as possible? No, and I'm glad you asked that question um, because one would expect there's got to be some amount of familiarity or knowledge of the escort industry. And I have to confess, I had no experience whatsoever. As I mentioned, it was all my books are really pure fiction and imagination. I don't know how real realistic it is, um, but it seems to have... Um, got a good response. I stumbled across the idea because in the Chapel of Eternal Love, there's one chapter that I wrote about about an escort who lives in Las Vegas. And again, she's fictional, of course. And she makes the mistake of falling in love with one of her clients who's not about to surrender his wife and his home and his children and I hope I'm not giving too much away if somebody's interested in reading this book, but it's only one chapter. So anyway, she, he says he wants to wait until his children are grown and through college and so on and so forth. And she sets aside a li- her, her life and um, waits for him for many years. And then they finally decide to get married at the wedding chapel. And um, I wanted to paint Emmy, the lady, in a very sympathetic light because I knew that women wouldn't necessarily warm to her being an escort. She sleeps with, you know, many of their husbands. So she wouldn't be a welcome character. And I wanted to paint her in a sympathetic light. So she lands up getting stranded at the altar. And again, much to my surprise, the readers will tell you what what they're interested in. The readers wrote and wanted to know what happened to Emmy. You know, if she was stood up at the altar, what happened to her after that? And as much as I got um, questions on other couples, I got more by Emmy by far. So I wanted to take that story one step further. I thought, well, you know, she got stood up at the altar and she's, evoked all the sympathy amongst this female audience. What if I wrote a book about three escorts who kills the guy that runs the agency and he treats them like dirt. He's really a scum. And so they come up with a perfect crime, but is it the perfect crime? And I wanted to see if it would evoke the same amount of sympathy. And so that... It's a murder book. It's not necessarily a mystery because you know right up front who's going to get killed. And you, if you follow through the story with the three ladies, uh, you go through the planning and the plotting of the murder and the execution of the murder. But then, of course, come the twists and turns. Do they get away with it or have they overlooked one small little thing that's going to blow the whole thing up in their faces? There's lots of twists and turns and... Uh, from the response I've got, nobody has figured out yet whether they're going to get away with it or not until the very last chapter, which pleases me because it means there's been enough doubt cast along the way as to what's going to happen. 
Yes. And do you believe that if the where the story took place for Emmy, if she was not left at the altar and there was an alternate ending, would that be dictated by the geography? Because in some parts of the world, the escort lifestyle is not openly, but it is implicitly acceptable because it runs parallel to the mainstream society of living and coexisting in relationships versus if, it, if Emmy was left at the altar in the United States, of course, women would have an opinion, at least given the Western culture here. Yes, I dare say um, it would be a whole different story if the, the book was set somewhere else. And um, maybe if the book were set in another part of the world, Sasha, maybe the book wouldn't have been written or the chapter about Emmy wouldn't have happened. Las Vegas, as you know, is the marriage capital of the world and is, it contributes a huge amount to the um, tourist industry here. And, of course, escorts are uh, legal, but you know, prostitution certainly isn't legal in Las Vegas, but escort agencies are. And I just thought, again, they're a pretty huge part of Las Vegas too. You know, we are Sin City as well. So... Um, I thought it would be fun to include a chapter to give a little slice of Las Vegas, if you will. You know, we didn't want them all to come from foreign countries and from foreign parts of the United States. Um, we needed to have a couple of people who actually reside in the city of Las Vegas and get married, and that's how Emmy came about. But yes, you're right. It would have been different if, had the book been set somewhere else in the world. We welcome such creativity, and I thought to inquire about that because given the type of work that I do on a global platform, I've been introduced to all different walks of life, different personalities, different occupations, and it's just amazing that we're all having the human experience just in a different part of the world at that moment in time. What would you say there's one aspect of Las Vegas that people do not appreciate enough of, but they often focus on the tourism, the gambling, the entertainment lifestyle? What is one secret ingredient of Las Vegas that made you fall in love with it? No, no question about it, the people. Absolutely the people. I think we're, uh, people who uh, visit Las Vegas, they, they do see the strip and they see all the gamblers and the car dealers and the croupiers and so on and so forth and they see the glamour and glitzy shows. doesn't necessarily come across as a warm city, but in many ways, despite its population, I, I believe it still to have a very small town atmosphere. Uh, the people that live here, I have found very, very warm, very, very friendly and certainly when I have book signings at Barnes & Noble or Hallmark or where, wherever I have the book signings at senior centers, everyone just seems to be so warm and so friendly and so loving. And I think that's what people don't necessarily see. I think they see it as Sin City. But they do have to look. We are the marriage capital of the world too. You know, people come here for love. For those tuning in, I'm speaking to Stephen Murray. You can check him out at www.authorstephenmurray.com. Also, he has other sites for his books, thechapeleofeternallove.com, murderabortthekey2.com, discreetlyyours.net. This information will also be relayed in his profile on sashatalks.com. 
and about authors with Sasha. As we move along, Stephen, I know that you also came from a corporate career prior, and you were linked to a technology company, and then you embarked upon writing later in life. There are many people I cross paths with who always go, I want to write a book, either on their bucket list, it's their passion, but there's something that holds them back. For those seasoned professionals and civilians out there, what guidance do you have for them to override those mental blocks? Uh, well, I would, su- I would suggest if they're seriously interested in writing, writing a book, either do a Google search on the computer, find if there's any writer's critique groups in their area or failing that go to a writer's class at the local college or university wherever you know adult school and meet some other would-be writers and form your own group because i have to tell you the critique group that i got in i wish i'd have known more about writing when i first started my biography which took me two years to write and I did it all alone. I didn't know any authors. I'd never met any authors. And I'm just bumbling along there in my own way. Uh, when I came to write The Murder Mystery and the Chapel Books and Discreetly Yours, I had joined this critique group. We meet every two weeks. We always have to take something that we've written, even if it's a page, and we share it with each other. And the others, they critique it positively. You know, we're there to support each other and encourage people to write and make things happen. And if some of your listeners are interested in writing, find a writer's critique group. One way you don't necessarily have to be writing a book, where you could just be writing some short articles and get into it that way. Write a couple of short articles, take them to the critique group and see what the other people have to say. And hopefully if in the right group, you, you will support each other and encourage each other and make it happen. Stephen, writing can be a vulnerable process and you are a seasoned writer. How do you interpret constructive critique? Because some people are very afraid of integrating themselves into these professional circles that are too empowered them and make them even stronger but not everyone responds well to constructive critique how do you respond to it when you are on the receiving end and what would your guidance be to those where they're afraid of going out because of receiving constructive guidance well i I think the one thing that everyone has to realize if they're writing a book or that it comes to any form of entertainment or any line of work i suppose is that not everybody's going to like what you do. That one has to just take as a given before you even set out. So then when it comes to criticism, one has to temper criticism with whether it's well-intended, whether it's well-meant, whether it truly is constructive, or whether it's just criticism for the sake of criticism. If it's criticism for the sake of criticism, ignore it. There's nothing you can do about it. You're not going to change somebody's mind. If it's constructive criticism consider the source and accept it graciously if it's constructive people are saying it because they want you to succeed they're not wanting you to be torn down or to rip your book apart and so many times it's not what is said it's how it's said 
the difference in inflection and tone can make the world of difference. So sometimes constructive criticism can be uh, considered brutal, and it, it is brutal sometimes depending on the source. But one has to, again, look at the source and say, hey, you know what, this person's saying it with the best of intentions. Take it with the spirit that it's intended. And those that are giving criticism, and I've had a couple of bad reviews on my books. As I said, not everybody's going to like it. And there's one that's out there that's uh, really, it's just not a good review at all. But again, not everybody's going to like my style of writing. We don't all like... Shakespeare, you know, we don't all like Emily Bronte or or any of the other authors, no Leo Tolstoy. We just all like different styles and different types of books. Speaking of authors, which authors did you read while growing up? Well, when grow, when I was growing up, certainly we were at boarding school, and um, English literature was one of the one of our subjects, and. <laughs> We were kind of stuck with a, with a lot of the classics, which I didn't particularly care for. Although I must confess, I have always loved Charles Dickens, the English author Charles Dickens. Um, I often wonder if it's because he was born in the same town that I was in England, uh, the town of Portsmouth. But I've just found his uh, his characters are so colourful, and the names are so colourful. You look at, um, like, The Christmas Carol, for example. It's a simple story, but you look at the names of Ebenezer Scrooge or in Oliver, you look at the Artful Dodger and Fagin. I mean, the names alone just conjure up something in your imagination. So Charles Dickens is definitely my favorite author. Returning to the genres that you write about, are there any new genres that you would like to try out? Well, right, right now, believe it or not, I'm going from the, the escort agency business <laughs> to a, a Christmas story. Really? <laughs> so, oh, I love it. It's it a wonderful shift. <laughs> yes. I think it's because I enjoy the challenge. It's the challenge of trying something new and different. It's very easy to get into a, a rut in certain things, whether it's your career or, or whatever. Unfortunately, sometimes we can get into a comfortable rut that feels nice and cozy and warm, and we don't want to venture outside. And I've certainly tried to do that with, you know, with my style of books. Um, and I decided at the end of last August, after Discreet Yours came out, I just happened to be watching a Christmas movie on TV as it happens in August on the Hallmark Channel. I thought, you know what? I want to write a Christmas story. So I said about writing it, it's not going to be finished by this Christmas and the rate it's going, I don't know if it's going to be finished by next. But in any event, I do hope to get it finished and get it um, published. Are you allowed to share with us if the audience is going to be intended to be a little bit younger or is it going to be among the adult audience? Um, no, it'll probably be, it's probably going to be more of an adult audience. It's not going to be um, uh, a children's Christmas story. It'll probably be, it's leaning towards more of an adult story that adults will relate to. Again, because it's, 
it's going to be a book about relationships, which it appears that that seems to be, the, if there's any common thread to any of my books at all, I suppose it is that they are about relationships. Um, obviously the chapel, you know, the relationships between the couples and the murder mystery, there was all the dynamics between all the participants at the silver wedding anniversary and discreetly yours, it's really about the dynamics of the three ladies all with their different backgrounds who are plotting to commit this crime and probably never thought in a million years that that's what they will be doing, but they did it anyway. And the Christmas story is going to be no different. It's it's a book about relationship. With all of the effort that you put into your career and your affinity for writing, you also seem to focus some of your energies towards various charities. Are there any charities that you would like to recognize today? I think certainly in Las Vegas, um, there's a local there's a local food bank that I'm very very supportive of and that I feel very strongly about because it's all volunteer and it's called the Society of St. Stephen. And they, it's literally all volunteers. There's no overheads, there's no cost, there's no expenses. Um, they just, all the people, they just volunteer their time. They're the true heroes, in my view. It's not those of us that donate or support it. It's the ones that make the wheels go round on a daily basis and get that food out there to the, to the less fortunate and um, I do like uh, the veterans organizations as well. And I've become kind of involved in the Alzheimer's organizations here. Um, I, my parents, my mother um, passed away from Alzheimer's and I know a lot of people with living with Alzheimer's condition. And I feel quite strongly about that too. I'm sorry to hear about that. I, in my spare time, I also engage in various types of social activities, and I know how it is to be in an environment supporting Alzheimer patients. It can be a very transient experience. That's a good form of education for us to pay it forward to the work that we do. Would you be kind in sharing with the audience how they can contact you directly? Sure. If they want to email me, uh, my email address is Stephen, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at Cassandras.net. That's C-A-S-A-N-D-R-A-S dot net. Or they can go and they can contact me via my website, um, www.AuthorStephenMurray, again, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y.com. And are there any appearances of yours on the horizon that they should keep an eye out on other than visiting your website at authorstephenmurray.com? Well, unfortunately, due to the pandemic in which we all find ourselves, I don't have any book signings lined up at this time because um, they've all been cancelled or postponed, um, I should say. You know, I had some lined up for Hallmark and a couple of the local Barnes and Nobles um, that I'd planned on appearing in some senior centers where I was going to be speaking and they've all been tabled and it's not a good time to be out there signing signing books. But I'm certainly hoping to get back to it as soon as this pandemic's over because um, I do enjoy the book signings uh, wherever, whether it's at the stores or at the senior centers or any groups that 
invite me to speak. I always find them fun and engaging and rewarding. So I hope to get back to those soon. And we will keep an eye out by visiting your website, authorstephenmurray.com. Stephen, I want to thank you for joining us with audiences on Moving Mountains. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Sasha. Thank you for the invite. I thoroughly enjoyed it. 